keep keep the danger away from the kid. Keep us out of prison, yeah. and uh, keep the money rolling in. Yeah. Need something to kind of work into officially talking. Fallujah bad. Fallujah bad. <laughs> <laughs> that was your favorite part of this film. Huh? Yeah. 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 I like that part a lot. Okay. Well, we're gathered here today to talk about War Dogs, a movie starring Jonah Hill, Miles Teller, and Anna de Armas, and directed by Todd Phillips of the Hangover films. He also directed The Joker. War Dogs is the story of two young men who fill government contracts for war materials and they get in a little deep. The type of deep where they were convicted of selling Chinese ammunition on a U.S. government contract. Mm. War Dogs gets a 7.1 out of 10 from the Internet Movie Database, a 61% rating from Rotten Tomatoes. Ouch. And a 57% rating from Metacritic. Joining me today, who you already hear reacting, is my ever-wonderful cohort, Don. Hello, Don. Hello. How's it going? Peachy. Thanks for being here. Sure. And after a sabbatical, it might be, it's been a while since we've had you on here, we have John. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. Good. It's good to have you on the microphone here again. Thank you. Good to be here. Now... I think it's been interesting since War Dogs came out to watch the trajectory of the three principal actors. Because when War Dogs came out, Jonah Hill was the star. He was the most well-known. What was the year of, the of War three. Dogs again? 2016. 16. Okay. He was already, uh, Jonah Hill was already established as a leading actor. He had done Wolf of Wall Street two years before War Dogs. Miles Teller got attention for his role in Whiplash with J.K. Simmons. He also did the Divergent series with Shailene Woody. Mm. Woodley, sorry. But I don't think he really, really caught until Top Gun Maverick just last year, 2022. Oh, that's the same guy. All right. Yeah, same yeah, guy. Okay. And then Anna Diarmas, of course. Mm. She has just exploded in the past few years. She's doing Blonde on Netflix, playing Marilyn Monroe. But I think she really came to everyone's attention with War Dogs and then also with Knives Out. I loved her in Blunt Knives Out. And I think she could quite possibly be one of my favorite James Bond secondary characters when she was in No Time to Die. Most people don't know that she was doing television and film in Cuba and Spain for 10 years before War Dogs. And she didn't speak English yet. So she learned... What? The she didn't speak English when she did War Dogs. She learned the whole script phonetically. And, wow. And then a change was made to a line during shooting, and she was kind of stuck. And she has said she learned English very quickly because her career depended on it. Mm -hmm. But she had to take a crash course during the time this film was being made. That's crazy. Yeah. So let's go ahead and talk about War Dogs, and we'll start as we always do by talking about how it was as a movie. Dawn, what did you like about War Dogs? I thought it was well-crafted overall. It was a neat packaging of a story, so it was pretty easy to watch, and I liked Anna de Armas's character. Oh, I thought Anna de Armas was great, and uh, one thing I really like is 
even though Jonah Hill is the star, it's not his film. It's really Miles Teller's film, I think, Mm -hmm. because his character's doing the voiceover. It's from his point of view. Mm -hmm. And with Anna de Armas, I think her character is a great counterpoint to Efrain Diveroli because every time she's interacting with Miles Teller's character of David Packhouse, she's providing an empathy and a warmth that Efrain does not provide. And when things really go to shit, it's when she's not providing that anymore. When she realizes she's being lied to. And he doesn't have that safe harbor anymore. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I thought she was really great in presenting that empathy and that warmth and understanding towards him as he's going through with the bed sheets and he's, you know, the late nights and everything else. I thought she did a great job on that. Is he still married to his wife? Miles Teller? No. <laughs> David Packhouse. Yes. We'll we'll get into where they went to later on. Okay. Yeah. And John, what'd you think of War Dogs? I loved it. It was like a uh I see when I watched it I thought Jonah Hill's coming into his own, but I guess I haven't seen The Wolf of Wall Street. Is he really good in that? Oh, he's excellent. Okay, cuz I think it was the first thing I've seen of Jonah Hill where I felt I like Moneyball, I thought he played a serious character, but there was still like comedic elements to it this one i i felt just the full dramatic impact of what a fucking great actor he is just just outstanding his so his role really i mean i love the whole movie but his role in the film i just thought he was brilliant yeah and what i like is the intelligence they assumed of the audience in this because when i first saw the trailers for this film i thought okay you know it's got jonah hill it's gonna be like frat boys with weapons i did not expect much to come out of this film and i was very very pleasantly surprised i don't think i had expectations going i never saw the preview i just sat down and watched it so was there anything you didn't like about the film not that i can think of off the off the top of my head don no all right so overall a uh a good piece of entertainment, we'd say, out of one to five stars. How many stars would you give it, John? Four. Solid four for John. Four. Four for Don. I'll go with four as well. Four stars as entertainment. Great film. I think everyone should see it. And now we're going to get into the historical accuracy of what's presented in War Dogs. We're going to compare the overall story and some specific instances to determine if this is a biopic that mostly sucks. It is important to note that there were many sources to check for this film. Uh, The first is the Rolling Stone article that was written, which the movie is based on. Another was Ephraim Deveroli's jailhouse memoir called Once a Gun Runner. Once a Gun Runner. The areas we are going to talk about today in order to fact check this film are about Ephraim Deveroli's youth and prior business with his uncle. The movie makes a mention of Ephraim working for his uncle and each one feeling the other cheated them. We're going to fill in the gaps on this situation. We're going to talk about David Packhouse's business ventures pre-AEY and his personal life. What really happened with the bedsheets? And AEY, what was the track record for fulfillment of government contracts? Were they as successful as the movie claims? And How did it all go so very, very wrong? The movie says it was all about the Chinese ammunition, but it might not have been. So let's go ahead and start with Efrain Diveroli's youth and prior business with his uncle. 
The movie says that Diveroli and Packhouse were schoolmates and that Diveroli was, quote, shipped off to live with his uncle in the 10th grade. In a voiceover, Packhouse states they are the same age. Diveroli states in the film that his uncle, quote, scumbagged me over 70 grand. So what really happened? Diveroli was the type of kid who some might call mischievous. In Temple, he would enter when the Orthodox Jews were praying on the Sabbath and turn out the lights. Ah! That's so wrong! What a little dick! And Don, you laughed. Why is that wrong? Explain to people who aren't familiar with it. Because it's a Sabbath. They cannot work on the Sabbath, and that would include doing things like turning on and off lights. Mm -hmm. He'd leave the congregation to pray in the dark. Packhouse went to temple with Diveroli, but while the movie says they were the same age and that Packhouse idolized Diveroli, Packhouse was actually four years older, and he found Diveroli's pranks to be more childish than amusing. By the time Packhouse had graduated from high school and moved to Israel, Diveroli was 11 and had started drinking Manischewitz. By the age of 14, he was kicked out of Hebrew school for smoking pot. Diveroli's mother decided that Miami was not a good place for her son, and Diveroli was sent to live with her brother, Bar Kocha Batak, in Los Angeles, in an attempt to get Efrain on the right track for life. Botak owned a tactical supply company, supplying law enforcement with all of the things law enforcement needs, guns, vests, uniforms, etc. He offered to put Diveroli to work in order to shape him up. Diveroli states that his uncle paid minimum wage and worked him for 10 to 12 hour days with no overtime. Diveroli liked the work. He wanted to go into sales, but his uncle considered him to be too young. Once Diveroli's mother found out Efrain enjoyed what he was doing in Los Angeles, she wanted him to come home and finish school. Efrain flew back home. And then September 11th happened. When law enforcement was increased after 9-11, Botak's business picked up as well. Diveroli dropped out of school and flew back to California to work with his uncle in sales. The movie mentions that it was money problems with his uncle that brought Diveroli back to Miami again. In his book, Once a Gun Runner, Diveroli says his uncle failed to pay him $75,000 in commissions that were due to him. Since Diveroli was in sales, he had fostered relationships with Botax clients. Diveroli left Los Angeles and took his uncle's client list with him. This is where we have the perspective where the uncle feels he was screwed over. Diveroli set up shop in Miami and recruited Packhouse to work for his company, AEY. But Diveroli needed a little capital to get started, and he didn't get it from a Jewish dry-cleaning shop owner in Miami. No, he got it from a Mormon in Utah. Ralph Merrill was a gun dealer in Utah. <laughs> What is so funny That's about That's a funny sentence. Things? Ralph Merrill was a gun dealer in Utah. <laughs> and one of the contacts. <laughs> That's a great sentence. Thanks. Feels like the beginning of the song. <laughs> Ralph Merrill was a gun dealer in Utah. And one of the contacts from the Botox client list, he would invest in contracts for a 30% return on investment. 
He was not in the dark at all about where the money was going or the returns he would receive. So, so the so the dry cleaner was a invention. That was a everything involving the dry cleaner, him uh, turning on the two of them to be to provide information for the feds. No, no, okay. none of that happened in any way. That's a pretty big shift of the truth. So let's go ahead and talk about David Packhouse's business ventures before he joined AEY. What is in the movie is that David Packhouse is peddling bedsheets to nursing homes in the Miami area while working as a massage therapist. His girlfriend is as understanding of the boxes in the living room as she can be. A catalyst for him to work with Diveroli is that his girlfriend becomes pregnant. Well, what really happened? Well, David Packhouse was really a licensed massage therapist, and he was selling bedsheets to nursing homes. But he didn't buy them in bulk, and he was not stocking the boxes in the living room. His business worked much like Diveroli's business, where he would contract with a distributor who would sell the bedsheets, and the Sounds distributor like would Sounds like a mafia ruse, man. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he did okay in the venture. But when Diveroli told him that he currently had $1.8 million of cash on hand, Packhouse found that working with Diveroli at AEY would be more lucrative. Packhouse continued to take clients as a massage therapist during this time. Diveroli complained in his book that Packhouse was not available during a critical time for AEY because Packhouse was in Palm Springs doing a massage job for a House full of guys who hired him for the weekend. So that part's true. Yeah. Diveroli's... The jerking off of middle age to elderly men. Diveroli took this instance in the book, <laughs> among many others, for homophobic rantings about Packhouse. Oh, give me a fucking break. Yeah. Packhouse... <laughs> I'm sorry. That's okay. That guy was an asshole in the movie, but it... I'm sure this goes way deeper. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have more for you. Yes, uh, the movie made him look good. Oh Jesus! Yeah. Yikes! Packhouse did have a girlfriend during this time period who did get pregnant. Their daughter was born in February of 2007, which fits the timeline of the film. Packhouse has stated that his girlfriend was fully aware of the work he did for AEY, so this means that all of the conflict taking place between the character of David. And the character of Iz was created to add conflict to the story. So he stated that, and that it's not not like in a that's been accepted as as true. Yeah, she hasn't. Yes, rebuffed that. No, no, okay. she hasn't. And Packhouse will freely talk about this time in interviews as well. But he he's not out there saying oh, I'm the guy from War Dogs. He just presents it as, yes, this is what happened. This is how it happened. That's lame. I feel like there's enough drama in the story already. You don't need that. I was just thinking that. I mean, why not show that she was into it or That would make it cooler, it? yeah. You know, instead <laughs> More complicated. of silly, I'm going to my mom's, if that wasn't what was happening. Like, yeah, money's rolling in. Okay, babe. Well, I, I don't know. I... I see that point, but I think also it's the story of a young man, and young men do stupid shit when they don't know how to handle things. And I think it was, I think it was necessary in the film for him to have a counterpoint on two different relationships. There's a frame who he's basically at, at the mercy of whatever a frame's doing, 
but he's not able to have a mature relationship yet with the woman, with his wife hmm. or I his did, girlfriend. I, I disagree. They they could have shown her analyzing the situation or, or giving thought to potential consequences and still shown that she was well aware of it and was okay with it. It doesn't mean she's not going to step back and say, this is happening. Is this still safe? Yeah. Or, you know, what are the chances of going to prison or whatever else she might have been looking at without all the silliness of packing and stomping down the stairs i feel like that flattens out her character too the the packing and the it's like a little cliche you know yeah yeah where that wouldn't be a cliche otherwise because that's the response you would expect i'm leaving yeah not oh cool yeah (laughs) keep burning right Right? keep keep the danger away from the kid keep us out of prison and uh keep the money rolling in Yeah. yeah i found this money bundled under the sink where's the rest yeah yeah yeah, is this my cut? <laughs> yeah, well, shit. I mean, if I were her, I wouldn't have even uh, dressed finding that money with him. Fuck no, no. Right, Throwing in a safe deposit box. I know. All right, so let's talk about the business of AEY, and we're going to talk about what their track record was with the fulfillment of government contracts. AEY got into the business at the right time. The Bush administration was funding wars in Iraq and Afghanistan at the same time and outsourced just about every facet to the lowest bidder. Spending on war contractors went from $145 billion in 2001 to $390 billion in 2008. How industrious. The military-industrial complex indeed is growing. The big guns, no pun intended, like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, as the Rolling Stone article says, quote, cashed in as war profiteering went from war crime to business model. In this environment, AEY fit in nicely. The entire business model for AEY was to sell to the U.S. government. To do this, they would find the lowest price they could to supply the contract while placing the lowest bid to win the contract and make a profit for themselves. When Divaroli won a contract to supply a foreign army with guns or helmets, he would get approval to substitute Korean or Chinese-made knockoffs. Many times this would double the profit he would make. Wait, so there was an approval process you could request Mm -hmm. that you were going to be allowed to substitute with otherwise forbidden product. Well, not forbidden. If the contract said it was looking for something and it said or similar, then you could you could make the request to say, I know they're asking for this, but can I substitute this instead? And those knockoffs would be a lower price for Diveroli, which if he's paying out less on the contract, he's increasing his profit. Mm-hmm. And that's what the whole game is. Now, notice it was for foreign armies. When it comes to foreign armies, knockoffs are just fine. When it comes to the American army, the contracts were usually for that specific brand that the government designated. By American. By brand loyalty. Yeah. The business aspects of Diveroli's operation in the film are the most accurate depictions of what happened during this time period. The website provided for bidding on U.S. government contracts really does exist. The process for bidding on a contract is exactly as described in the film. 
There is a point made in the movie that when Diveroli is asked about what AEY stands for, he becomes upset with answering the question. Efrain should know what AEY stands for because when his father named the Shell Company, he named it after his children. Wait, so his father was involved? His father created a shell company called AEY. and For this purpose? No, for another purpose previously. And Uh-oh. Efrain took that shell company and turned it into AEY. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? Efrain is the E in AEY. The A are three children, Aaron, Avrigail, and Afrom, and the Y is Yeshea. You could also see why he wouldn't want to tell people that because that might lead to them understanding that his father created a shell company. John, any thoughts? I'm with Don that the shell company is like red flag off the bat. Never a good sign. <laughs> Especially when we're talking. <laughs> what do you do? We've got a couple of shell companies. Uh-huh. Oh, are they in the Caribbean somewhere, perhaps? Eh, Seychelles, Caribbean. I don't oh, know. Yeah. Where are they? Yeah, yeah they're somewhere in the, yeah. in the I have ocean. a couple profitable shell companies. Ah, profitable there shell you companies. Go. Yeah. Do they involve <laughs> weapons? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, while we're talking about DeVaroli's personality in business, it would be a good time to discuss his choice of artwork in the office. As AEY grows and adds staff, a large picture of Al Pacino in his role as Tony Montana in the film Scarface adorns one wall of the conference room. The sunset landscape behind Diveroli's desk is also a nod to Scarface. Diveroli also quotes Scarface a few times and gives Packhouse a gold grenade with a quote from the film. However, Tony Montana was not the screen character who Diveroli idolized. Remember that in the 1983 film, oh, spoiler alert, by the way, Tony Montana dies. Diveroli idolized another arms dealer in motion pictures, Yuri Olaf. Oh. The gunrunner played by Nicolas Cage in the, what I think is an excellent film, Lord of War. Yes. Have you seen it? Yeah. Uh, Underrated. Most people don't know it. If you haven't seen it, go see it. Jared Leto's in it. He's excellent there. But yeah, I love Lord of War. But so did Diveroli, because consider this. Yuri is pursued throughout the film by Interpol agent Jack Valentine, played by Ethan Hawke. And at the end of that 2005 film, spoiler alert, Yuri gets away with it. So the arms dealer Diveroli idolized was the guy who got away with it. That would make sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk about how he tried to get away with it. Because AEY's track record of fulfilling government contracts left a lot to be desired. Their failings were documented in the hearings following the State Department investigation on the issue with the Chinese ammo. For instance... AEY had an Army Special Forces Command contract for ammunition terminated in 2005 because of late deliveries and poor quality. An Army contract for gun scope mounts terminated in 2006 because of AEY's failure to deliver after two extensions. A State Department contract for weapons systems terminated in 2007 because AEY provided the wrong items. <laughs> 
Okay. The Defense Department terminated four delivery orders under a larger contract to supply munitions to Iraq security forces because AEY failed to deliver the goods, including 10,000 Beretta pistols. Does that sound a little familiar to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a whole section in the film where it shows the lengths AEY would go to fill an order, including driving through the triangle of death. Not only did AEY not deliver on the order for Berettas that's shown in the film, you know, the deal the movie says set them up for future contracts, mm-hmm. but Diveroli and Packhouse did not travel to Iraq. Ah, bullshit. That sucks. The only yeah. time they went out of the country was for conferences. Ah, that's... It was never for on-the-ground business. It was like the coolest scene in the movie. Come on. It was, but here's the thing. That whole sequence really did happen, but it happened to Guy Lawson, the author of the Rolling Stone article, when he traveled to Iraq in order to research the story. Oh, so the journalist was the badass, not the fucking weapons dealers. That's what it was. Holy shit. Make a movie about the journalist. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would point I'm out over this story already. <laughs> yeah, and I would point out on a on a parenthetical note that this is what happens when you allow the lowest bidder consistently to be awarded a contract. The best deal is not always the lowest cost. Yeah. Okay. Well, hang in there, John. That's I, a bummer. I'm uh, already so irate. <laughs> That's okay. a real bummer. <laughs> and I know sometimes you check out entirely when you get really upset about it. So stay with me. Okay? I'm trying. No, I'm, ha- I'm having a hard time. Don, Don, stay with me. I'm trying. Here's what happened with the Beretta deal. In 2005, AEY was awarded a contract to provide munitions to the Iraq security forces, including the 10,000 Beretta pistols. Diveroli was only 19 years old at the time. According to the testimony of the contracting officer during the Senate hearings, when Diveroli failed to deliver the weapons, he just started making up wild excuses. The contracting officer said, Diveroli said the German government was interfering in the delivery of these Italian-made pistols. He said that transport planes couldn't fly because of bad weather. He even said there was a fiery plane crash that destroyed the documents necessary to secure an export license needed to ship the goods. Does he not think a CO for federal contracts would be able to confirm such information? Apparently not, because Diveroli also said that he failed to deliver the weapons because a hurricane hit Miami, Florida, where AEY is based. He told a contracting officer that they had no water and that his life was just terrible. Oh, Jesus. To quote the contracting officer again, quote, we could tell there was no hurricane in Miami. It wasn't like we didn't have internet in the green zone. (laughs) So... What, was Devaroli just pulling a Trump? He was just taking a marker and making yeah. a bigger circle uh-huh. about where a hurricane yeah. might have happened yeah. and when? Yeah. And they present this in the movie. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Jesus. Oh, man. And what's funny is they present this approach in the movie as working. 
Remember, right. he, he gives that line about his family if the uh, contract is terminated for cause. And that is for the Beretta deal in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's how he keeps the Beretta deal. Man. All right. So how how did it all go so wrong? The movie shows that it was a combination of illegal activity on the part of AEY and not following through on paying the guy who was repackaging the illegal ammunition. Along with hubris on the part of Diveroli in trying to cut Henry Girard out of the deal, all of which led to the downfall of Evren Diveroli and David Packhouse. What a name, Packhouse. Yeah. Yeah. You know he's in the film. No. The real David Packhouse. Yeah, no. Remember the scene early on, the guitar player who's playing Don't Fear the Reaper Mm -hmm. to the old age home? That's David Packhouse. (laughs) Oh, my. Good God. So, what really happened? Well, this part of the story actually includes a whole lot more information and participation from national government officials than could have been put in War Dogs. But I think they should make a sequel to the film. That shows you what I'm about to tell you. And I think as you listen to this, you'll agree. Steven Soderbergh is a good choice for it. We're going to start by setting the stage and confirming much of what the movie shows, as well as fill in a few blank spots. What we're going to talk about was a governmental fuck-up of epic proportions, mixed with a fair amount of greed from the Albanian mob, Diveroli, and the man hired to do the repackaging. In real life, Packhouse and Diveroli did not meet Henry Girard. They met Heinrich Tomet, a Swiss arms dealer, at the Eurostory conference in Paris, France. They met him at his booth at the conference as he was representing his business, Swiss BT International. The BT stands for Brugger and Tomet, the two founders who started manufacturing firearm suppression devices for the Swiss market in 1997. And I wish they would have presented this in the film. I love the idea of international arms discussions taking place in a mundane setting, like a booth at a conference. It's like the the home and garden show with heavy artillery. (laughs) It's like a David Lynch thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like put a, yeah, yeah, that'd be funny. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when they put it at a blackjack table and at the bar, it's like what you expect to happen in these types of films. Mm -hmm. And I think it would have just been more true to fact and bizarre to have it be just a fucking convention, which is what it is. This is all just business. I mean, that's the scary thing when we talk about this is this is all just business. How much can you divorce yourself from... The shit that you sell. Mm-hmm. The shit mm-hmm. that you're peddling. <clears throat> Tomet had already been singled out by Amnesty International for trafficking arms out of Zimbabwe in violation of U.S. sanctions. Tomet was not on the U.S. watch list at the time of his meeting with Diveroli and Packhouse. He was placed on the list two months later for trafficking arms from Serbia to Iraq. So was he the feared figure that we're that we see in the film like he i mean he bradley cooper's character inspires terror yeah that guy is terrifying cold and like just a killer they they were quaking in their boots when they heard that name well i got the impression he was more 
revered in the international arms circles, especially when they say when they hung Saddam Hussein, yeah. he sold them the rope. Right. I think it was more of a, this is the guy we aspire to be. Oh, okay. More than a, this is a guy to fear. Hmm. Maybe it just inspires terror in me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think you're both right. So I would agree and disagree because I think they were terrified of him and they wanted to be like him. They wanted to be the alpha. They wanted to be able to sell the rope that hung the next dictator. And the only way you get to that space is to be that feared and that competent in that world. Yeah. And like Diveroli, Tomet started trafficking arms as a teenager. And he saw an opportunity to supply AEY with munitions to fulfill the government contracts he could not bid on for himself. It's crazy to think about. I mean, we I think about like the drug underworld all the time, but the arms underworld, and that's not even like domestic, just the international mm-hmm. trafficking of high-grade weapons. <laughs> it's fucking frightening. Yeah, it's it a is. frightening, but that's a scary business. Jesus, man. Well, now we're going to reach the part where things start to get really interesting. Because it was on July 28, 2006, that a 44-page contract was posted on the FBO.gov website. It was titled, A Solicitation for Non-Standard Ammunition. This was an innocuous name for what was a semi-covert way for the Bush administration to supply arms to the Afghan National Army without congressional approval. You see, at this time, the war in Afghanistan was not going well. And rather than go in front of Congress to ask for approval, the Pentagon issued what was called a pseudo-case. And this is a solicitation that permitted the Pentagon to allocate defense funds without the approval of Congress. Go War Powers Act! (laughs) The pseudo-case wasn't exactly secret, but the only place it was posted was on FBO.gov. There was no public debate for funding this contract. There was no dollar amount attached to the contract. And suppliers could bid whatever amount they wanted to. And while the film shows Packhouse finding the listing, it was really Diveroli who found it minutes after it posted. Packhouse went to Diveroli's apartment where they smoked a joint and strategized how they would approach the contract. They really paint Packhouse as eager but Desperate and eager, but he knows what he's getting into, but very clever. And the impression I'm getting from this discussion is that he was not really those things. It's Diveroli, who's the mastermind behind all of this. I think it depends on whose point of view you're taking. Okay. Because in Diveroli's book, Diveroli can do no wrong. Okay. Also keep in mind, Packhouse was a consultant on this film. And Diveroli wanted no part of it. Oh. Diveroli didn't... Oh, motherfucker wants to write a book, but he did Okay, all right. All right. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I hate this guy worse. Than, who's the, I can't remember who I hated the last time. There was someone that I just fucking went ballistic on. Yeah. Yeah. This guy sucks. Yeah, he does. Yeah, man. And uh, so, I mean, keep in mind as well, if Packhouse is a consultant on the film, how much of his point of view is seeping into what yeah. is being presented? So I, I think you kind of have to take both with the grain of salt. I've seen Packhouse interviewed. He doesn't seem like he aggrandizes any of this or uh, or hangs his hat on what he did. 
when he's interviewed about it, he answers questions freely. He doesn't seem to make it more than it was. He just talks about it matter of fact. So it's, you know, you, you don't know unless you know a person, but reading Deveroli's book is definitely getting into his headspace and what he presents of himself and people around him as well. That's really going to bug me because I was thinking that same thing. There was someone in an episode we recorded fairly recently and the two of us were just Mm -hmm. beside ourselves. Oh, I can't. Fuck, what was it? I don't know, but I remember you sitting there, and I remember I wasn't getting much out of you. The no, more we I just remember going, him. this guy, this guy, I fucking hate this guy. <laughs> you, you started shutting down, which yeah. made the discussion tough. Yeah. And, and you actually said, that's it, I'm done. Yeah. And I'm going, fuck, we still got more episode to do here. <laughs> yeah. It, it made editing uh, a, a little... <laughs> a joy. <laughs> a bit of a joy, yeah. <laughs> Because you know you want the audience to be engaged, but right. if your guest is checking out, then <laughs> and the guest is saying "fuck this." <laughs> Was it Falcon and the Snowman? Oh no, no, no! We haven't no. done that yet. Oh no, I don't. I, I'll have to go back and take a look. We'll figure it out. AEY had three advantages over other bidders. The first was the Bush administration's small business initiative through the Pentagon, which is mentioned in the film. That's the analogy of the participation trophies. Mm -hmm. The second was they had past performance in supplying the Cold War munitions that the contract called for and additional supply lines through Tomet. And the third was that the contract required the munitions to be, quote, serviceable without qualification. Remember, they're giving these to a foreign army. So serviceable without qualification, Diveroli and Packhouse decided, meant, quote, they could supply shit ammo as long as it went bang and left the barrel of a gun. So again, I'm thinking Packhouse comes across in the film as like a little trepidant about this stuff. But he was, they were both gung-ho about it. Well, sure, they're making shit tons of money. No, but I mean that they were equally like enthusiastic about this. Like, yes. He, mm-hmm. pa- okay, yeah. he did not have the reservation. Okay. No, not necessarily. Okay. So Diveroli and Packhouse put together their bid. The movie makes the point that AEY underbid the second place bid. So Diveroli was worried about being outbid on the contract, and he dithered about a nine or ten percent margin. He he was really worried that one percent was going to bring it too high. And so the last minute he bid $298 million on the contract, which gave AEY a 9% profit margin. And he worried so much about being underbid that what he did not account for is the extent that larger contractors would overbid to take advantage of the fact that this was Pentagon money that was being spent. So when you do the math, it turns out that the other contractors overbid by a 10% margin. If they had bid along the lines they usually should, it would have been a little closer. But the reason why it was $53 million in the film is because of the overbidding from other contractors. Ladies and gentlemen, your tax dollars at work. Mm -hmm. Now, at the time AEY placed the bid for the contract, 
they had an excellent rating with the Defense Department. What? They had an excellent rating with the Defense Department. And the Rolling Stone article surmises that this was due to the lowball bid that was submitted <laughs> because of all those failures we talked about earlier. I should point out that the film shows Diveroli and Packhouse putting together false financial documents in order to secure the contract due to a U.S. government audit of AEY. This did not happen. Remember Ralph Merrill, the Mormon from Utah? <laughs> I do. <laughs> the, the Mormon gun dealer the Mormon? from Utah. <laughs> Well, Ralph Merrill, the Mormon gun dealer from Utah, put up a $30 million collateral of real estate, along with AEY's excellent rating, and the government let AEY skate on the audit. What does that mean? What that means is they didn't have to present financial documents like you see in the film. So you can put your property up against an audit and they'll waive the audit? If you have an excellent rating as well due to your lowball bid. Holy shit. Wow. There are definitely two different worlds in this country. That's fucking nuts. Are you both still with me here? Yeah. Hang Trying. In, hang in there. Trying. Okay. This is disappointing. Yeah. Now, when it comes to everything that went wrong with the Chinese ammo, that discovery was not made by Packhouse. Packhouse and Diveroli were not in Albania for all of this. The person who discovered the Chinese markings on the crates was a guy by the name of Alex Padritsky. Alex is actually mentioned briefly in the film. It's in the scene where Packhouse comes to Diveroli's office to quit. And Diveroli says, you don't have to go back to Albania. I got a guy, Alex, he speaks Albanian. Well, Alex was a former classmate who spoke Albanian. And he was the person who discovered the Chinese markings on the crate in the airplane hangar in Albania. Oh, shit. He also supervised the repackaging of the ammunition. Now, based on what the movie says, the repackaging is where the problem started. In fact, there's even that brief freeze frame as Packhouse shakes Enver's hand as they agree to the terms as if marking that this is an important moment right here that's taking place. However, the movie seems to make more of that moment than reality would dictate, because AEY had no reason to worry about the Chinese markings. The U.S. Embassy didn't care about the repackaging of Chinese munitions. How is the embassy involved? Oh, just you wait. Because... It's a federal government contract, so it's a defense contract. It is a defense contract. We should note that Diveroli says in his book that the reason for repackaging the munitions was entirely to save on the cost of shipping prior to the discovery of the Chinese ammunition. You're talking about big wooden crates. You're talking about fuel prices going up at this time. So the plan was get the wooden crates out of there, repackage into lighter containers, it's going to increase our profit. Because remember, that's the whole game here. Yes. You want to increase your profit. Per Diveroli, he reached out to Major Ronald Walk at U.S. Army Terminal Operations, who gave the approval to repackage the ammunition. After that approval was granted, the Chinese ammunition was discovered. And then... Costa Tribeca, 
who is the character of Enver in the film, was brought in to provide the repackaging services. So in the film, it's, these are Chinese markings, let's repackage, and then Enver in the film gets wise to what's going on. In real life, it was, we want to increase our profit and save costs, repackage. Oh shit, there's Chinese ammunition, and then Costa's in the situation as well. The crux of the whole issue here is the violation of a U.S. embargo on Chinese munitions after Tiananmen Square. But the munitions were delivered to Albania before the embargo was in place. When AEY discovered the origin of the munitions, Diveroli called the Department of Defense advisory desk. So there is an advisory desk for working on these contracts. The hotline. The hotline. <laughs> I inadvertently purchased Chinese munitions. Can you give me guidance? Where are they? They're in Albania in a warehouse. Basically. <laughs> We're repackaging them. Yep, basically. He called the advisory desk to ask if they could ship Chinese munitions that predated the embargo. That's a reasonable question. The answer from the DOD was no. Ouch. But the munitions in Albania were just sitting there. The Albanians were in the process of joining NATO. And NATO wanted the Albanians to stock NATO munitions. The Albanians wanted to get rid of this old Soviet stock so badly that the Albanian president met with General David Petraeus in Baghdad in 2007 and offered the munitions to the Afghans for free. For reasons unknown, Petraeus did not take him up on the offer. So they met in Iraq. The Albanian Albanian president. To potentially arrange to provide munitions to Afghanistan. Yes. And they were told no. They were told no. Now, the way Representative Henry Waxman sees this Mm -hmm. during the House investigations, he said, quote, it seems that the U.S. government paid $300 million for ammunition they could have gotten for free. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, I always did like watching uh, Congressman Waxman. Now, the U.S. Embassy in Albania wanted to get the munitions out of there, too. So they met with Albanian officials and informed them they would not be concerned with the repackaging that they knew AEY was doing. One thing the movie glosses over is that even if you repackage 100 million rounds to eliminate Chinese markings on 80,000 crates, you still have Chinese 100 million rounds of ammunition with Chinese markings. Mm-hmm. Each bullet is stamped with the country of manufacture, mm-hmm. and it would be known at some point that AEY sold the U.S. Chinese munitions that went to the Afghans. At this point, AEY is in a gray area for which path to follow. They have a contract to fulfill, munitions that are available, and two countries that, at least on some level, just don't care if they repackage the munitions. They have a hard no from the Department of Defense, a less than strong approval from the U.S. Embassy in Albania and the Albanian government. This is bonkers. Couldn't you see Soderbergh knocking this out of the park? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Meanwhile, back in the airplane hangar where the repackaging was being performed, Tribeca, Enver in the film, B-52 
became suspicious when he was instructed by Alex Padritsky to discard the Chinese documentation when performing the repackaging. Tribeca called the U.S. Embassy and met with the economic attaché Robert Newsom, who informed Tribeca that the Chinese markings on the casings were not a problem because NATO and the U.S. and the EU wanted Albania to get rid of the Soviet-era munitions and restock with NATO-style munitions. Tribeca was told there was nothing to pursue and to leave the issue alone. At this point, AEY looks like they're good to go. They have the U.S. and Albanians who who are not going to make a stink about the embargoed munitions. Tribeca is told there is no there there. And apparently, no one's going to bother to tell the DOD what's going on. And then Tribeca found out what Tomet paid compared to what he was charging AEY. Because Tomet is using the same business model as AEY. Bid low, go cheap to maximize the profit margin. Tomet contacted Diveroli to try to get a cut of the munitions deal on top of the repackaging contract. And just like what we see in the film, this is when things start to unravel. Diveroli took the pricing issue to the U.S. Embassy and had a meeting with the same Robert Newsom who met with Tribeca. Diveroli was told that the U.S. Embassy could not get involved with a commercial contract. But Newsom sent an email to the State Department about the situation, with instructions to reply along classified channels. A few hours later, Tomet called Diveroli to say the price per 1,000 rounds had dropped. But now, the Albanian mob was in the mix and they wanted the repackaging contract as well. Diveroli agreed to the new terms and gave the contract to the mob. Basically, Tribeca's efforts to get more money had resulted in him losing the repackaging contract entirely. At this time, Nick Wood of the New York Times contacted the Albanian defense minister, Fatmir Medu, and let him know he was arriving in Albania the following morning to get a look at the Chinese ammunition. Medu went to the U.S. Embassy to ask them to keep Wood from entering Albania. U.S. Ambassador John L. Withers II suggested that Medu instead remove all of the Chinese ammunition from the hangar. Wood arrived in Albania to find an empty hangar. They suggested he moved 80,000 crates? Out of the hangar with less than 24 hours notice of a visit from a U.S. journalist. (laughs) It's the mob at work, baby. (laughs) I can't decide. Is this just a... Bars? Like a <laughs> ripping <laughs> yarn. <laughs> oh my god. And then after Nick Wood left, the munitions were replaced in the hangar and the Jesus. repackaging continued. <laughs> so AEY paid Tribeca for the work that had been done, but Tribeca called Diveroli and threatened to go to the CIA with the information he had about the repackaging. He recorded the conversations. Who did? Tribeca? Tribeca. Conversations with Diveroli. And I have a snippet of one of those conversations. What's happening with, with your pal Pinari? I don't know. You tell me. I mean, did you make a deal with him with the boxes or what? Who, I you don't want to make a deal with him. You know that he's a crook. You told me before that he's a mafia guy. Didn't you? I think he is. Uh, yeah, I think he is. Either he's the mafia or the mafia is controlling him. Yes. Either way, he's a prop. 
The problem, the difference is I don't have a choice. I have to deal with him. I've already committed to him. The U.S. government's expecting the product. I have no decision to make. Okay, Costa. Yes. The company doing the packing, you hear that, might want to buy your, your packing material. Okay, that's good. That's good. Okay, I'm going to broker the deal. That's the best thing for you, best thing for me. I'm Which one is the company? The is it is it still Deliorgi, Mihal Deliorgi? Is this the company? I have no fucking idea. I have no idea. Really don't. I have no idea. We're waiting for Tenari to send the details of this company. Okay. Okay. Listen, I, I'll say this. I will push the sale very hard to go through so you unload your material. Mm -hmm. I want you to give me your packing your, your, your cargo. Mm -hmm. Okay, because I, I, I've been 100% with you. Okay. I, I, did not remove, I, I did not remove you from this job. Mm -hmm. You understand that, right? I understand. I understand. Nothing to do with this. Mm. Nothing. I, I'm not even... I'm, I... Even if, even though Tanari asked me to and he's forcing us to, I have never supported this decision. Never. I understand, I understand. I'm very, very upset. I'm very concerned. I'm very concerned is the best word. Is he, is he still working with Henry? With Henry Tumming? I have. I think he's still working with Henry. Uh, I, I, he, oh, I'm still working with Henry. Mm -hmm. I, I, have, I have to work with Henry. I see. I'm working with Henry. Because once he realized Tenari that I'm different than, than Henry, I can't play I can't play monkey business with the mafia and the Leorgi and all those fucking guys in Albania. You know, I, see, I can't I play the mafia. I'm I'm a U.S. company. I'm working for the government. Everyone's watching me. Tenari needs a guy like like Henry in the middle to to make to take care of him and his buddies, which is I none see. of my business. I don't want to know about that businesses. I see. I want to know about legitimate businesses. I see. I understand, man. That's I understand. My feeling. That's my feeling on the situation. That's mm -hmm. my idea. That's my opinion. I see. You know. I see. I understand, man. It's up to you, man. You, you know, it's, it's, uh, I can help you. If you find any problem again, you tell me and I will help you. But I think that with Pinari and his mobs, with his mafia guy, with the Leorgian Henry, it's going to be very difficult for you to go ahead because they will create lots of problems. But anyhow, in each and any case that you need me, you may give me a call. Probably I will be invited in Washington, D.C., you know, from the CIA guys and from my friends over there. And uh, we will be meeting in, uh, two, one week or two weeks from now. I will come in Florida, even in Florida, too, to shake hands with you and to discuss the future deals. I, I, I like that. Let's do that. That was the actual recording between Tribeca and Diveroli regarding what was going on. In I can't imagine having in any context, in any context for any amount of money to listen to that guy talk for more than a couple of minutes. Which one? Diveroli. It's like, put a gun to your fucking head, man. God. Slime. You can hear it. You know, it's whenever someone starts especially telling you about themselves. Mm -hmm. I'm a, I'm a, I think, uh, shut the fuck up. You don't think anything. Just shut up. Talk. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Oh, sorry. Oh, that, ugh, that gave me the. You still with us, John? I'm with you. That gave me the creeps, though. I don't like that guy's voice. I know. I feel gross. I feel like I need to shower. Okay. Tribeca went on to become a whistleblower for corruption regarding the sale of munitions to Albania and was a key witness to an explosion at a munitions factory that killed 26 people, including children. 
The investigation that Tribeca triggered resulted in Fatmer Madu, the same guy who wanted the New York Times reporter kept out of Albania. Well, he was the Albanian defense minister, and he was stripped of his immunity, and three other people were arrested as a result of this investigation. Costa Tribeca was found dead on the side of a road in September 2008, presumably from a car crash. His body was found on the side of the road. Presumably from Presumably a car from crash. Presumably from a car crash. I, that sounds very much like he fell on a knife five times. But there were some other issues that happened in fulfilling this deal. One of the planes being used to ship the Chinese ammunition to Iraq was seized in Kyrgyzstan and sat for weeks as it was used as a bargaining chip by Vladimir Putin. <laughs> I, I just want to say this is how dictators end up getting elected or rising to power because there's so many shenanigans going on. People just want someone to be clear when they're full of shit and they just want to take stuff over that. They just want to be the boss of everyone. Yeah. I Cause think, yeah. people just figure it's already happening. You may as well have someone in charge who is just out there with it. Yeah. I think it's, it's like, you give into that inevitability thing where it's like, yeah. oh, it's going to fucking happen anyway. So you might as well have someone running this show. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so Putin held this plane because he didn't like that Kyrgyzstan was to join NATO. Does that sound familiar in any way? Feels very familiar. And Kyrgyzstan wanted more money to be a crucial waypoint on the supply route to Kabul. The U.S. government had to get involved to get the Kyrgyzstan government to release the plane to continue to Afghanistan. Defense Secretary Robert Gates flew to Kyrgyzstan himself to resolve the issue. Now, if you've been following this, that means that a U.S. cabinet member intervened to convince another country's government to allow a shipment of embargoed munitions to be delivered to supply a war that did not have congressional approval. Yeah. Holy shit. There is so much wrong in that one sentence. This is what makes me want to do Hotel Rwanda hmm. in the near uh -huh. future. Because mm -hmm. this reminds me, this gives me, It doesn't. it's not the same thing, but it gives me that feel of that conversation that Don Cheadle talked about with Condoleezza Rice when they were trying to put the kibosh on his advocacy efforts. Hmm. And he just walked out after being summoned to the White House on his cell phone to his friend saying, if I'm found dead, I did not commit suicide. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, once the New York Times article came out, a federal investigation was launched. It seems the U.S. government was fine with embargoed munitions being sold to supply the Afghans. They just didn't want anyone to know about it. Now that it was widely known that embargoed munitions went to the Afghans, the government had to do something. As the investigation started to gain steam, Deveroli's attorney advised him to stop shipping the Chinese munitions. Deveroli said, you said it wasn't illegal, is it? His attorney said, not that I can see, but the government doesn't like to lose. When AEY's offices were raided, Packhouse called Padritsky, who was in Albania, and let him know. According to Padritsky, Diveroli stranded him in Albania. Diveroli claims that Padritsky fled Albania scared shitless. 
per Deveroli, it was not the Chinese munitions that AEY was being investigated for by the Defense Criminal Investigative Service, DCIS, and the U.S. Attorney's Office. As you can imagine, AEY made a lot of enemies from larger contractors who were upset about being underbid on those contracts by two guys in their teens and 20s who were smoking dope. Well, maybe you shouldn't be submitting bloated proposals so you can make extra money off of taxpayers. Yeah, instead, one of these... Fuck con- them. They should just line the... Oh, fuck, never mind. I'm not going to say it. Okay, anyway. Instead, one of these contractors falsely tipped off the feds that AEY was illegally selling AK-47s. When the U.S. attorney began the investigation of AEY selling AK-47s, Packhouse was contacted by the attorney general. According to Diveroli, Packhouse's first words to the U.S. Attorney General were, Well, I guess you know about the Chinese ammunition. (laughs) Tragedy of errors? I don't know. (laughs) They weren't even being investigated for the Chinese ammunition to start. Now, Don, I know one thing you really, really wanted to be true is if the elevator door opened at the lobby and Diveroli and Packhouse were there in the condo building and greeted by the FBI and one of the agents says, well, that saves us some time. That would be glorious. And that would be, to me, an appropriate amount of snark from an agent avoiding a showdown at someone's front door. Sadly, that did not happen. Fuck! I knew it! Every time I really want something to have happened, it never happened! Because the last time it involved Jonah Hill, too. It was yes. Moneyball. Yes! Which one was that? That was when uh, Brad Pitt's character walked up to him and said, Who are you? And he says, I'm an assistant. And Brad Pitt just kept saying, Who are yeah. you? Because he knew there was something more there. Yeah. Damn it! No, at the time all this came down, Packhouse and Padritsky were working with the authorities. Both of them had felt screwed over by Diveroli. Diveroli was arrested as he left his lawyer's office by officers who approached his car with their weapons raised. Per Diveroli, Packhouse told them that Diveroli had a weapon and planned to flee the country if indicted. The stories are similar. It still made it easier for, for law enforcement because he just showed up while he was at his attorney's office, which is also convenient for him. His attorney's already right there. His attorney's looking out the window when this is happening. (laughs) Holy shit. Oh, okay. I guess I better get down there and bail him out. Yeah. 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 My job only just began this morning. So what happened to Diveroli and Packhouse? While Diveroli waited for his trial, he continued to sell arms under a new company named Ammo Works. He hadn't been convicted of anything yet. He could still do business with the federal government. Okay. Okay. In the end, Diveroli was sentenced to four years for conspiracy. After he served his sentence and while on probation, he traveled outside of his county in Florida to meet some people in a parking lot for an arms deal. (laughs) To meet some people in a parking lot? For an arms deal. Unbeknownst to Diveroli, the people... Like, he, like he's like he's buying a, a baggie of, of weed. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> what the fuck? Oh, how is that any different from a booth at a conference? Oh, my God. A parking lot? <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, oh, this gets better. That was There's that was like at the conference, right? That was like before cannabis was legal, and you got your dealer <laughs> hanging out in a parking lot somewhere, waiting for all the teenagers to show up on Friday night. Oh my god! Behind the high school football stadium, baby. <laughs> oh my oh, god! You're gonna enjoy the rest of this oh. then, because unbeknownst to Diveroli, the people making the arms deal were undercover agents. <laughs> The agents recommended that everyone go shoot the semi-automatic weapons that Diveroli were believe, believed were part of the sale. I had a fantasy running in my head. I thought you were going to say they, they were going to say shoot Diveroli. No. <laughs> uh, although the entire reason the agents are doing the sting on him was because they did not find him to be American from his actions. So this was literally U.S. agents using their office and power for revenge on Diveroli. Okay, well, they didn't find him to be American, or they didn't find him to be a patriotic American. A patriotic American. According to their definition. That's it. So they're doing this to get him while he's on probation. So they say, hey, let's all go somewhere and shoot this guns. Oh, damn. We didn't bring any ammo for this. Oh, Jesus. Jesus. You want to guess what happens next? Deveroli gives them ammo. He goes into the local Walmart and buys the ammo. Oh, my God. Comes back, handles the weapons, both of which are violations of his parole. And he was arrested on the spot. It's like, it's like what are you, fucking stupid? Right? <laughs> or greedy, man. I mean, that, I, I yeah. don't know, a confluence of both of those. Or who did we say his hero is? Oh, yeah. He, th- okay. he thinks he'll get away with it right. after already serving four years. Right. right. And, well, he's, and he's on, on probation. probation. Yeah. I mean, but did he even get charged with a probation violation? I mean, that's such a setup. I he, mean, there... he did. He served additional time. Jesus. Yeah. Now, after War Dogs was released, Diveroli then went on to sue director Todd Phillips, producer Bradley Cooper, <laughs> Warner Brothers, and others associated with the production of War Dogs. The charges in the lawsuit include breach of non-disclosure agreements, misappropriation of his likeness, and conversion of confidential and proprietary information. Notice he's not suing for copyright infringement. Well, this is... Be- what, what, how would he sue for copyright infringement? I don't understand. Well, he really can't because he copyrighted his memoir in 2014, which is before the Rolling Stone article came out. Copyright does not protect the use of facts. Copyright only protects the way those facts are presented. So even though his book was copyrighted, the Rolling Stone article can use the exact same facts on record and present them in a different story and also be copyrighted. That feels very in the weeds to me. Mm -hmm. Now here's where it gets interesting. While in prison, Diveroli formed the now-defunct entertainment company Incarcerated Entertainment. Shut the fuck up what is they need to make like three four uh-huh. just, yeah you're right yeah <laughs> incarcerated entertainment. yeah emma this... works incarcerated <laughs> entertainment yeah yeah and so he he creates incarcerated entertainment while in prison in order to monetize his story he sent a letter to director todd phillips and warner brothers to sell the story from his manuscript warner brothers said they would get back to him when they did, they said they were not interested. Oh, uh, okay. Diveroli contends that his lawyer, Khan, violated a non-disclosure agreement, NDA, by showing Todd Phillips a draft of the manuscript when they happened to be on the same airplane flight. 
However, a non-disclosure agreement cannot be violated for something that has already been publicly publicly submitted to the U.S. Copyright Office. Yeah. <laughs> this guy is Trumpian. Like, oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> just everything that just dig in more, dig in more. Yeah. <laughs> You can't sue for copyright. Sure, I can. Yes, I can. And I'm gonna. But it's pu- it's public. It's yeah, yeah. David Packhouse, Diverly's former partner, worked as a consultant on the film War Dogs, which dilutes Diverly's case of copyright violation. It's perfectly plausible that Packhouse could share the same information that is contained in Diverly's manuscript because they had a shared experience. Additionally, if Diveroli discussed any of his experience while in prison, there's no expectation of privacy or exclusivity if a third party wanted to share what they heard. And in the end, because he told his story to Rolling Stone before he published and sold his book to Warner Brothers, he screwed himself out of making any money off the story. So could Rolling Stone have sued him for telling his story? I mean, I, I I wouldn't consider that to be legit, but every mm-hmm. based on everything else going on in this storyline, it just seems plausible. Yeah, this this could it could go anywhere. I feel like from where this discussion started, <laughs> where we are now, Putin's involved. Oh, right, <laughs> Robert Gates is involved. Robert Gates is going to Kyrgyzstan. Kyrg- Kyrg- <laughs> To get a plane load of embargoed munitions released to go to the Afghans. Oh, yeah. It seemed like a straight path when we started, right? And that path has forked many, many different ways. So today, AEY Inc. does have a social media presence. They are on Facebook. In 2019, they posted a Facebook picture of golden automatic weapons and munitions that said... 2022 will be our new beginning, which it's mentioned in the film. They can bid on government contracts starting in 2022. Uh However, the DOD has barred AEY until 2025. Oh, and you remember that line in the movie about we'll go to every triangle, even your mother's? That was a Facebook post from the company. Jesus. David Packhouse served seven months of house arrest. During that time, he went back to his first love, music. And he took that time to work with his... <laughs> Sorry, these transitions are just... Right? They're jarring. They are. Right? The, the licensed massage therapist. therapist. Guitar Sheet player. selling guitarist. His real love is music. His real love is music. His he love. took his time under house arrest to work with his brother, who's an electrical engineer, to develop a device called the Beat Buddy. So basically, it's a drum machine that's for guitarists to use hands-free. And apparently, it produces some of the most lifelike drum riffs of any other drum machines out there. And you can also put in your custom drum beats if you want. You can take a drum beat recording and put it in there. But oh my God. guitarists can use this to perform and they don't have to take their hands off the guitar to work it. Lovely. Well, that, <laughs> that, I think... Some... Redemption, yeah. right? That's redemption. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. So as we ask in every episode, let's take a look if any harm was done. <laughs> I don't think Diveroli or Packhouse came out of the movie any worse than they did in real life. 
in fact, uh, I think Diveroli did more harm to himself from the book he wrote, Once a Gun Runner. Uh, I think you use the term dick for him. I agree. He's more of a dick in that book than he is in the movie. Anytime he mentions Packhouse, it's with the purpose of demeaning him or to be homophobic. He writes of at least three instances of having sex with his girlfriend in a public bathroom. Uh, Ew. The episode that takes place in Why? the- Why? I don't know. The episode that takes place in the Louvre is particularly demeaning towards her. He also writes about having sex with a black woman and says she tasted like 200 years of oppression. The movie really made him look better than he is in real life. Maybe that's just because Packhouse didn't want to acknowledge he was with someone even worse than who was in the movie. Uh, yeah, I think. Yuck. For- Oh, my God. I think for Packhouse, the movie sticks pretty clear to the facts. He had a girlfriend who gave birth to a daughter during the time period. And even though he was a consultant on the film, there really doesn't seem to be anything that's to present him in a way better than he may have been. I wish he would have worked the music career thing into the film. That would have been. I mean, can you imagine that ending? Right? (laughs) (laughs) He's playing at a dive bar to three people who are at last call. Oh, my God. Wow. Well, but I don't think it stuck to the facts. I think it had those few facts in it. And Mm -hmm. I think that's an important distinction. Yeah. And if you see him interviewed, he doesn't seem like a a bad guy at all. He's a nice guy who illegally trafficked munitions to another country, trying to hide it, and otherwise being part of the military-industrial complex. What a nice dude. And with that, it's time to grade the movie War Dogs and find out if it is a biopic that mostly sucks on a letter grade of A through F. Don, what do you give it? F. F, 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 F minus. John, what do you give it? As low as it can go, but I'll go with an F. There's no lower. Go with an F? An F crawling on its belly through the muck. There you go. Is this all just about Diveroli and how he really is? Or is this about No, nothing in there's Nothing in it is true other than they both existed and he yeah. had a girlfriend who had a child. <laughs> I'm just I'm really disappointed they didn't drive through the triangle. That's not cool. Yeah. That's that was exciting in the film. It was a well done sequence in the film. It reminded me, but that's what I, the, it reminded me of that hangover sequence when they're driving home from Vegas mm. and they're uh, right? Okay. Yeah. It's, yeah. No. Yeah, and I'll go along with you and give it an F as well. F's all around for the facts. Uh, still a good movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Fabulous a, film. Still a fun movie. Well shot. We gave it a four for that. Uh, do you think you can watch it the same way again? Yeah, probably. Yeah. 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 I think in the end, most of the time when we find the films to be enjoyable, then they're just enjoyable films. Mm-hmm. And those also tend to be the least paralleled to facts yeah yeah i really want to see that whole geopolitical piece made into a film that would be fantastic i I mean it would how could you keep up with it it would require so much background and explanation you'd have to come with an appendix (laughs) Uh, and researching this it was like what what this happened and then i had to go search for that yeah you know and then the house investigate or the senate investigations it was just it was wild to research it was a lot of fun 
Well, I would hope Soderbergh would get hold of it if anyone was to do it, because the only other person I imagine putting their claws into it would be Oliver Stone, and that would just oh, be no, a no, catastrophe. No. That would be a fucking yeah. catastrophe. Take that back, Don. No, I'm saying it as a as a an alarm. <laughs> Don't let the man near the camera again. <laughs> yeah. All like right. he'd make Robert Gates out to be some sort of tragic yeah. two-dimensional hero and Oh yeah, and he would be tormented by some kind of past uh, yeah. Oliver Stone-esque uh, trauma yeah. that he's going to work out in his whatever yeah. the fuck he's doing. By by conducting himself in this manner. <sighs> yeah. And then the ghost of Jim Morrison would appear. Yeah. <laughs> oh, did we talk about this when Oliver Stone and there's this part, I think we talked about this, but I just want to say it to pile on. There's this part at the end of the Doors DVD documentary. Or not, uh, it's like a documentary about the making of the Doors movie. Anyway, uh, Oliver Stone is sitting there, and he's go, he's waxing. Just He's almost crying, and he goes, I miss him. And he's talking about Morrison. <laughs> what? You didn't know him. You listened to his shit when you were in Australia. <laughs> like, what? Oh, my God. What's going on? <laughs> How do you cry and miss someone you never knew? How? Yeah, you become a, psycho- a psychotic fucking director. Or someone... Wa- <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. What is Oliver Stone doing now? Anyway? I, I don't know. Did Whose life do- is he destroying next? He did that thing about the United States, right? It was like, oh, it was like brutal history yeah. or something. Yeah, he did something like that. Uh-huh. All right, we're getting off track okay. here. Uh, John, just want to check in with you. You good? I'm good. You're, you're good, Don? You're I'm good? all right. You're all right? All right. Well, thank you for being here, Don. Sure thing. Thank you, John. Thank you. All right. Oh, my God. I want to vomit a little bit. That was horrible. <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> uh, <gasps> yeah. Now is the time when we fact check ourselves. I can't possibly presume to have every answer for every question that comes up during our conversations. And sometimes, just sometimes, our guests will ask me to do some extra research and I share that information here. For instance, Don asked if David Packhouse is still married. Well, the truth is that Packhouse was never married. He and his girlfriend had their child in 2007, and the status of their relationship is not known at this time. And we couldn't recall which episode it was that John had such a vehement reaction as he learned more about the topic of our discussion. That breakdown took place during our discussion for the Steven Soderbergh film, The Informant. Let's take a listen to that moment now. Please note that I have edited the conversation to focus on John's comments, but you can listen to the full episode about The Informant on our website at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash informant or anywhere else where you get your podcasts. I don't know. I'm torn. I'm I'm torn on this one. I yeah. still just the, the character. I'm I'm just I'm dividing between the character and the and the real story. And I'm having a problem reconciling my vision of the character and my understanding of the man. Mm-hmm. Mm. I love the character. Yeah. And the more we talk about this, the more I hate this motherfucker. Really? Why? With the film, I can have the distance that. This is a character I'm watching that's been created and it's enjoyable. But the more we talk about the real story, mm-hmm. 
just loathing. The more we talk about it, the less interested I am in the guy. And yeah. the more I think that this this story needs to be told, but the man involved, Whitaker, is just utterly insignificant. The movie's fabulous, but oh jeez. I, I don't want to know any more about this guy. I'm I'm I, I, I am better off with this piece of information floating <laughs> from my head and never to return. But now I'm going back through the whole movie and I'm finding all his quirks annoying. And I'm finding his quirks... <laughs> just shut up. Just stop talking about that. Yeah. This wraps up another episode of Biopics Mostly Suck. If you liked it, please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. We are literally everywhere everywhere you can find all of the sources that we use to build this episode at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash war dogs we have nothing to hide i usually throw in some other goodies on the episode pages like videos or pictures on the website today i have a video of david packhouse showing how he and diveroli would search for contracts on fbobizops.gov I want to thank John and Don for talking about War Dogs with me. It was a treat. You can find John Helix on Facebook at John Helix Official, and you can find his music in most places where you get your music. How are we doing with this project? Go like us on Facebook and Twitter at the handle of at Mostly Suck, or send us your feedback through our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com, and you can recommend which movies you would like us to use for an episode. And we will share the true story behind that movie based on a true story. Take care, everyone.